Time is certainly an interesting thing these days, isn't it? As we were watching those video testimonies, I was like, wow, this is now the seventh week that we have met in this online-only format. And in the next breath, I was like, wait a second, it's only been seven weeks? Some days it feels like it's been so much longer. And I don't know about you, but I've spent more time at home in the past month than I think I did last year. I've been laughing at the things I've started doing in quarantine. There's quarantine puzzling and quarantine baking. My favorite is apparently quarantine purging, as is evidenced by the cardboard boxes presently stacked in my kitchen, waiting to go somewhere else to be donated. The problem is I learned last week that most secondhand stores have told people they have to stop bringing in their donations. They have no room to store all of these things that people have pulled from their dressers and drawers, their garages and attics. But I got thinking, when all of this is over, can you imagine the treasures that will be unearthed from all of these quarantine purge parcels? It reminded me of a particular box that is sort of a, a joke in my extended family. You see, in 1972, my grandfather cleared out an office that he had occupied for a number of years as a college professor. And as you know, the longer you occupy a particular space, it seems the more stuff you accumulate. And so my mother was gifted a box of assorted things from this office space, stuff that my grandfather no longer had use for and assumed my mom like, might like to have. Now, I don't know if mom went through that stuff initially or just did a surface level skim, but somehow this box got tucked away in my parents' home. And it wasn't until 20 years later which was more than 15 years after my grandfather had passed away, that my mom finally got around to going through this box of things from his office. Well, shortly thereafter, I returned home uh, on a break from college, and I noticed that my parents had a new piece of artwork hanging in the living room. I was not impressed by this thing. In fact, I kind of wondered if my brother or I had created this in elementary school or junior high school and my mom had saved it sentimentally and then in empty nesting mode had brought it back out, framed it and hung it for display. Thankfully, I held my tongue. I didn't ask that because when she saw me looking at this picture on the wall, she told me, oh, I found that she used the word unique, I would say strange picture, in the box of things that I had from your grandfather's office. Now, I'm going to need those of you who are fine artists out there to forgive me because I realize that my lack of understanding in this whole domain is tragic. But you guys, this is what I was looking at. Doesn't that look like something you doodle on a napkin while you're talking on the phone or listening to an online sermon? <laughs> well, my mom pulled this thing out of the box and somehow noticed right away that on the back of its frame, there was an authentication seal affixed to it from a New York art gallery. And so it prompted her to do further research. Come to find out this was not, in fact, some junior high school student's beginning art project. Instead, it was one of 150 copies of Alberto Giacometti's famous etching entitled The Search. And because it had that 
authentication seal affixed to it, it was apparently even more of a rare and valued collectible. Not too shabby to pull out of a cardboard box, wouldn't you say? I have a feeling this sort of thing happens all the time. I mean, you watch one episode of the Antiques Roadshow and you quickly realize that people so often have no idea of the value of the things that they possess. I read a story last week about a farmer in Michigan. He had pulled a large rock from his field and used it for 30-some years as a doorstop in his home. Then one night he had guests for dinner. One of those guests was affiliated with the School of Geology at Central Michigan University. And before leaving, the guest said to the farmer, can I take that with me back to my lab for some testing? Well, last year, that university, in association with the Smithsonian Institute, determined that this farmer's doorstop rock was actually a ginormous meteorite, one of the largest ever found in the Great Lakes region, and it has an estimated value today of over $100,000. It's so easy to have no idea the value of the things we possess. So last week, Pastor Steve reminded us that upon returning to his disciples following the resurrection, Jesus gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we should note here that Jesus didn't just tell these people they were empowered to do great and mighty things like he had done in his ministry. Instead, he physically placed the Spirit upon them with his breath. And that seems significant to me because remember, Jesus himself received the Holy Spirit from the Father through the physical manifestation at baptism. Luke's account said that after Jesus was baptized, he was praying. And as he prayed, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in physical form descended upon him like a dove. I don't know about you, but typically when I read the account of Jesus's baptism, I get caught up in the words and the voice of the Father. It always sounds like James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman, right? But I hadn't really ever before considered the significance here of the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit until I thought about later Jesus using breath, that which can be felt and intentionally placed upon another person to share this same spirit with his followers. In other words, just as the Holy Spirit descended on Christ in physical form, so the breath of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit came upon or was delivered to his followers. And yet as I look at what happens next in John's account, I have to wonder if the disciples really understood the value of this gift they'd been given. For that matter, I wonder if we understand the value of the Holy Spirit in our lives today and what it makes possible in and through us. Because this isn't just a gift to know of or about, right? It's not something just to believe in or understand exists. It's something that has to be embraced and received, taken on and given permission to change every facet of our lives, to transform us holistically. And so I think the often misunderstood value 
of the Holy Spirit is its power to completely change the identity of those who receive it. This is more than just a title we're given, redeemed, saved, child of God. It's as we heard last Sunday, a commissioning, that which can and should animate our every thought, word, action, and deed. So when this gift is received, the beneficiary possesses an invitation and empowerment to do and be things that simply weren't possible before. Those who possess this gift are welcomed into the work and mission of the holy community of God. This is huge, but it's so often easy to not understand the value of the things we possess, isn't it? I think this is especially and understandably true when we're talking about possessing the things of God. This particular instance is talking about his Holy Spirit after all. But if we don't understand the value of this gift in the first place, then it's really unlikely that we're ever going to live into all it makes possible in and through us. So I've been asking myself this week, if we who have been given the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus Christ and who are called to join him by the power of that spirit in doing the work of God here on earth, then what keeps us from truly understanding the value of this gift and living into everything it makes possible in and through us? And I think we find a few answers to that question as we continue reading in chapter 21 of John's account. For starters, I wonder if part of our challenge is simply an issue of reception. Following the account of Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit upon them, we don't read that the disciples jump up and immediately start preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and raising the dead. In fact, we're told that after this great gift is offered to them, Peter looks around at his team and says, I'm going fishing. Now, I, don't, I think Peter probably had good intentions here. He'd spent the past three years following Jesus around, traveling all over the place. And so maybe he just figured it was time to get on with his life. Perhaps he had people dependent upon him and needed a paycheck, if you know what I mean. And if he didn't, certainly some of his band of brothers did. But as N.T. Wright so eloquently says of Peter, like half the things he proposed in the gospel, this was probably a case of Peter having the right motivation, but the wrong judgment. Instead of receiving the gift Jesus had offered and then committing himself to what that gift was going to make different and possible in and through him, Peter goes back to the way things had been. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what motivated Peter here, but I have to wonder if his return to the boat was driven at least in part by a reluctancy to receive the gift Jesus had offered him in the Holy Spirit. If he felt unworthy to receive something so valuable from his Lord and teacher. Because remember, it was just a few days before this that Peter had publicly denied Jesus, not once or twice, but three times. And Peter had a track record of struggling with shame, didn't he? Think back to the very beginning 
when Jesus called to him saying, follow me, when Jesus stood on his boat and allowed him to bring in that first miraculous catch of fish, Peter openly struggled to reconcile the idea that he was worthy of such a calling. And he said, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. If this was Peter's struggle, then maybe he actually did understand the true value of the Holy Spirit. He just considered himself unworthy to receive it. And so he returned to his boat, figuring it was the best he could do, given all of his failures and shortcomings. This is what I mean by a reception problem. Because I wonder if we too can struggle to understand the value of what we possess in the Holy Spirit because we've never fully accepted it in the first place. This isn't to say we don't believe it's real. We even really like the fact that it's around and accessible to us. But like a present that's wrapped, sitting under the Christmas tree, and then is moved to the mantle when the season is over, we leave it unopened and simply on display, within reach, but never truly received. And so the value of this gift can never be realized in us because it's never fully been accepted by us. And so the gift's potential is never understood or realized. A second thing this story highlights for me about our lack of understanding of the true value that is in the gift of the Holy Spirit is that so often I think we misbelieve that this gift is only applicable in certain ways or by certain people who have particular giftings and callings and responsibilities certainly ones different than our own. This isn't to say we don't receive the Holy Spirit in the first place. We just don't live as though it has any application to us in the here and now, or that it makes anything different in our present day, perhaps only in the future. And I wonder if maybe that was what drove Peter back to the boat. I mean, after receiving this gift of the Spirit from Jesus, did Peter spend a few hours basking in the kindness and generosity of Christ and all he had given to his fellow disciples? Did he assume that what Jesus meant when he said, as the Father is sending me, so I am sending you, was that he was going to join Christ one day in the heavenlies? that this gift had a later application. It was a ticket to eternity, if you will, with Jesus. If that was the case, then it makes perfect sense to me that Jesus would sometime later, as the text says, return to fishing. Because he, he would have needed to do something to pass the time, right? He was waiting for a day when he could finally live into this gift he had been given, when it would finally be applied. And you know, if this was Peter's misunderstanding of the value of the gift of the Spirit, then what's beautiful to me about this account is that Jesus seems to meet him right where he's at. He offers Peter another opportunity to understand what the Holy Spirit could and desired to make possible in and through him. We're told the disciples had spent the night fishing and that they'd come up empty-handed. And so, they're headed back in when Jesus calls to them from a hundred yards away. 
and he tells them to cast their nets again, this time on the right side of the boat, which any experienced fisherman would have known made no sense at all. And just like Mary Magdalene at the tomb and the two on the road to Emmaus, the disciples don't recognize that it's Jesus instructing them to do this very unorthodox thing. I don't know if they figured, well, what do we have to lose? (laughs) We might as well trust this guy. Maybe he sees something from the shoreline that we can't. But they recast their nets. And suddenly and miraculously, they have a catch that's too large to pull in themselves. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? It's almost a complete repeat of what Jesus had done for Peter back when he called him in the very beginning Yet it's ironic. John's the one who figures out what's going on. He blurts out, it's the Lord. And at that moment, Peter finally gets it. He has a light bulb moment and he jumps in the water with reckless abandon, swimming toward his master on the shore. What's fascinating here for me to consider is that the first time Jesus filled Peter's nets, he was standing on board with him, present in the boat. But this time he fills them from a distance before they even realize who he is. And so I wonder if this was Jesus attempting to show Peter what he and his fellow disciples were now capable of, of the holistic nature of the Spirit's value to them, even in their seemingly common vocation, because they had a new identity as Spirit-filled, commissioned partners in the gospel. He was showing them it had present application. I wonder, was this a foreshadowing for Peter of the type of miraculous things that he would be able to do even after Jesus was no longer physically present with him? can't help but think of this whole scene as an added kindness by Jesus to Peter, who he loved, that he was giving him another chance to fully comprehend the value of what he was now in possession of and the way the Holy Spirit was absolutely applicable to every facet of his life, even in his seemingly common and unremarkable work. Far too often, I think we shortchange or underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in us because we think it has limited application in our lives. And so I wonder if we stifle the Spirit's power or believe its present application and impact of the gift we have received there is pertinent only for those who have more important roles to play in the kingdom, more valuable work than our own. But what could the Holy Spirit do in and through us as teachers and welders and civil servants and administrative assistants and on and on and on if we simply understood and embraced the full extent of the gift that we have been given and we employed it to our daily work and in our relationships? How would this change our homes, our community, and our world? Finally, I wonder if some of us struggle to comprehend the value of the Holy Spirit living within us because we're simply unwilling to yield to its ultimate authority and impact in our lives. 
Once Peter got back to shore, Jesus invited he and the other disciples to have breakfast with him. And I'm guessing this was sort of a dream invitation for Peter, right? It was another chance to spend time with Christ. But Jesus had a little more than a casual breakfast on the beach in mind. The, com the conversation that took place thereafter is the one where Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And upon the first time being asked this, Peter almost enthusiastically engages the dialogue. He says, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus responds saying, then feed my sheep. But by the second and third time, Jesus repeats this line of questioning and direction. You certainly get the sense that Peter is growing frustrated, maybe even offended or a little annoyed by the question. And while there is a ton to mine out of this particular passage of scripture, I assure you, I have to wonder if part of what's taking place here is Jesus redirecting Peter and trying to help him see that in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is going to be called and led into all kinds of new things for the sake of the kingdom. Remember back when Jesus first called Peter, he told him, that he would be a fisher of men. But here, Jesus now tells Peter that he's also gonna be a shepherd. Not just someone who brings people to Jesus, but rather one who is responsible to know them, to feed them, to lead them and protect them, journeying with them on the road of discipleship. And so I wonder if Jesus repeated this question and the directive to feed his sheep in an effort to help people, Peter understand the weight and the entrustment he was being given. I wonder if Jesus was making sure that Peter realized Jesus was about to leave. But because he had been filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter would be capable of fulfilling this responsibility and so much more for the sake of the gospel. Certainly this was a threshold moment for Peter because suddenly his identity as a, a fisherman and a follower of Christ was transformed and graduated into a new level of intensity. And yet before the spirit could compel and enable Peter in this mission, Peter had to first decide if he was willing to take on this calling, if he was going to allow the spirit within him to lead into such unchartered and uncertain territory, doing things he knew he was incapable of doing in and of himself. And I wonder, what if the Holy Spirit the same spirit that filled and compelled Jesus Christ desires to move us and our work to a different level. Will we follow the spirit's leading? Will we allow ourselves to move into unchartered and uncertain territory and even ask the spirit to give us a grander vision? perhaps even an unconceivable vision to us right now for what could be possible in and through us. It's my hope and prayer that with a true sense of the value of the Holy Spirit we've been given, just like Peter, 
we will live into even the most unexpected and seemingly impossible things that God calls us to. Aesop wrote a fable entitled The Story of the Miser in which a man was gifted with a, gold, a bag of gold coins. And recognizing the great value of this treasure, the man took it to his field where he dug a hole and placed the bag inside. And then each day he responded he returned to this plot and he dug up the bag and counted the coins to make sure his treasure was still intact. Well, night after night, a thief watched the miser from the distance. And during the night, one evening, he dug up the gold himself and he ran away with it. The next morning when the miser returned to the spot and dug for the bag, he found nothing but an empty hole and he wept and cried bitterly until someone heard him from afar. And as this bystander came to him, he said, what on earth is the matter? My gold, my gold, the miser said, someone has robbed me. The man looked at him and said, your gold, they're in that hole? Why on earth did you place it there? Why didn't you keep it in your home where you could access it when you needed to buy things? Buy things, the miser said angrily. Why, I never touched the gold. I couldn't think of spending any of it. And the stranger picked up a large stone, tossed it in the hole and said, well, then cover that up. It's, just, it's worth just as much to you as your gold ever was. It's so easy to have no idea the value of what we possess to underestimate all we have been given as children of God, isn't it? But it's my prayer that as the Holy Spirit of the triune God is available to us, we will accept it wholly. We will understand and employ its application in our lives today, here and now, even in our everyday activities that seem mundane and insignificant and that we will allow this gift to expand our vision for what we're called to do, that we will let it lead us into uncharted territory so that God can accomplish his great and mighty things in the world today. To that end, I wanna pray for you this morning. And I wanna use the words from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Galatia to convey a sense of confidence a sense of identity and an assurance that he who began this good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So will you pray with me? God, we believe that the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and that just as you raised him, so you will give us life by that same spirit. It is also ours as your children, allow us to be led by your spirit, not a spirit that makes us fearful slaves, but those who confidently cry to you, Abba, Father, and who holistically live into the fullness of what you desire from and for us. By this same spirit, God, we ask that you would daily affirm us as your beloved children, daughters and sons of the Almighty, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and that those who have access to your strength, power and might in full measure would be alive here and now as well as in the life to come. 
by the power of your gift of the Spirit, may we share both in your suffering and in your glory in a way that conveys our confidence and our surrender to your will and your way in all times and in all seasons. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our gift, our companion, and our guide. Amen.